Farmers Loan and Trust Company against Pollock, 1895. These are the facts. During the Civil War, Congress passed the first income tax law establishing a tax on personal income. It was passed with little difficulty and was repealed at the end of the war. In 1894, Congress passed a law reinstating personal income taxes and attempted to extend it to cover business enterprises as well. One such business was the Farmers Loan and Trust Company of New York. When Mr. Pollock, a stockholder in Farmers Loan and Trust, learned that the bank was preparing to pay its taxes under the law on its income from real estate, municipal bonds, and trust funds, he asked the bank not to pay, insisting that this tax was unlawful. The conservative board of directors, however, was determined to pay the tax, and Mr. Pollock took the issue to the courts. The argument by the attorney for the plaintiff. May it please the court. The act of August 15th, 1894 is repugnant to the Constitution. If you tax the rents from real estate, you are actually taxing the real estate itself. For as the noted English judge, Lord Coke said, what is land but the profits thereof? A tax on land is certainly a direct tax, a tax on the value of a possession. Our Constitution guarantees that all direct taxes will be apportioned among the several states. The Act of August 15th, 1894 is an act calling for direct taxation. Yet nowhere does it require apportionment. It must, therefore, be considered void. If, however, one is able to separate the income from property from the value of the property itself, and I do not think this is possible, then one must conclude that this is an indirect tax. But again, our Constitution has demanded that all indirect taxes must be uniform. Yet, this Act specifically excludes insurance companies and savings banks from taxation. These corporations hold the same kind of property that Farmers Loan and Trust holds. They're in the same kind of business. Yet, they are not taxed under this Act. Surely this is not the uniformity of indirect taxation that the Constitution demands. Surely, therefore, this act must be void. Finally, by taxing all of the bank's income, this act taxes the income from municipal bonds, bonds issued by subdivisions of the states themselves. Would the federal government presume to tax the proper activities of states and their municipalities? Was the Constitution intended to impair the right of states and cities to borrow money? The answer must be no. The attorney for the bank saw no point in arguing about the constitutionality of the Act of 1894. In his view, Mr. Pollock had no right to bring this question before the court. He asked the court to consider not the income tax, but Mr. Pollock's right to begin the lawsuit in the first place. Should the court find that he had no such right, they should dismiss the case. The argument by the attorney for the bank. May it please the court. The plaintiff, Mr. Pollock, has no right to bring this case before you. He has no right to tell a company in which he is a minor stockholder whether or not to pay its taxes. 
There is therefore no necessity for examining the constitutionality of the Income Tax Act. We ask the court to dismiss this case. This case, which in fact is no case at all. The court quickly disposed of the defense, saying of course a stockholder had a right to stop a company from paying out of its capital for unconstitutional taxes. After all, he had an interest in that capital. Mr. Chief Justice Fuller spoke further for the court. Mr. King, a delegate, asked what was the precise meaning of direct taxation. No one answered. Although there have been from time to time intimations that there might be some tax which is not a direct tax, nor included under the words duties, imports, and excises, such a tax, for more than 100 years of national existence, has as yet remained undiscovered. It is apparent that the distinction between direct and indirect taxation was well enough understood by the framers of the Constitution and those who adopted it, that under the state systems of taxation, all taxes on real estate or personal property, or the rents or income thereof, were regarded as direct taxes. That the rules of apportionment and uniformity were adopted in view of that distinction, and those systems that the original expectation was that the powers of direct taxation would be exercised only in extraordinary exigencies. Now, unless a tax upon rents or income issuing out of lands is intrinsically so different from a tax on the land itself that it belongs to a wholly different class of taxes, such taxes must be regarded as falling within the same category as a tax on real estate. The name of the tax is unimportant. If by calling a tax indirect, when it is essentially direct, the rule of protection could be frittered away, one of the great landmarks defining the boundary between the nation and the states of which it is composed would have disappeared, and with it, one of the bulwarks of private rights and private property. We are of the opinion that the law in question, so far as it levies a tax on the rents or income of real estate, is in violation of the Constitution and is invalid. Thus the Congress was prohibited from passing an income tax by the protections of apportionment and uniformity in the Constitution. An amendment was needed to create such an income tax. The 16th Amendment was the legislative answer to farmers' loan and trust against Pollock.